Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. And we have to start looking holistically for, for real solutions and things that actually will make a difference. And they can make a difference quickly. We don't need more plans. We don't need more special studies. We don't need to gaze at our navels anymore. We need to get busy. When I began the Homeland Lab project, I wanted to speak to as many people as possible from as many different perspectives as possible about the overlap of homelessness and public space. I assumed I would speak to city council members, representatives from nonprofit organizations, and people who had experienced homelessness, but I'm not sure I ever thought that I'd be speaking with an assessor. Then I met John Wilson. With a career in public service, John has thought about how the housing affordability crisis has led to an increase in homelessness. When he was elected to his position in King County, Washington, John decided he could help change the conversation about the role that public lands could play in solving homelessness. To learn more, I recently sat down with John to hear about what he's doing and how he hopes to advance the conversation. For people who don't know, what does an assessor do? And how traditionally has an assessor interacted with the issue of homelessness? Um, by state law, the assessors is established to establish property values for all uh, commercial and residential properties in a jurisdiction. So in King County, that's roughly 700,000 parcels. Um, the majority of them are residential, but there are also um, probably close to 100,000 or so that are commercial properties, ranging from small mom-and-pop bodegas to Boeing, Microsoft, and large corporate campuses. We also set values or track land characteristics on publicly owned properties owned by the state, by the University of Washington, um, by the county, by the city, a whole host of, of players in that. Traditionally, in terms of what the assessor has had to do with homelessness, not much. Yeah. Um, and I made a determination when I got into office that we were gonna change that. In, in part because I think overall our, our, our housing crisis is, is something that's sweeping across the region at almost all levels of, of housing, from those on our streets to those on our hilltops. Um, and until we try to figure out how we provide housing for all, it's going to have negative impacts on um, values in terms of, in some cases, driving them up in some areas, driving them down in others. Uh, and it also has a profoundly negative impact on affordability and the ability to get people off the streets and into housing, whether it's rental housing or eventually perhaps even into home ownership. Um, you know, part of it is I take a sort of holistic view of the job that I have two customer bases. One is the general public, the taxpayers who pay for property taxes, uh, and that's individuals and businesses, large and small. Uh, the, the other is the government that provides us services for homelessness, for public health, for public education, a host of those things. And part of what I'm trying to do is balance between those two to make sure that taxpayers are paying their fair share, but not more than they should, but not less than they should, 
but that I'm also creating an environment where there is a stable, reliable source of revenue to fund those local services and not a wild roller coaster ride of real estate booms and busts. Uh, you know, we saw from the crash in, in 2008 or 9 the devastating impact that had on government services and, and frankly, also on homeowners and, and, and that. So part of it is my notion that let's try to be smart about this and see if we can't maybe get a little ahead of the curve rather than just always be looking backwards and hoping that it wasn't too bad. So, so what are those tools that, that you're seeing to be able to get ahead of that curve? Or maybe what are the traditional tools and what are maybe some new tools that you're using? Well, there, there's several. The, the, the first and foremost tool is we are literally the one agency in King County that has records on every single piece of property. Um, and we have not historically used that for purposes other than just to tax you. I said, look, it's worth more than that. Um, that's in part why we have people like Zillow and Redfin and realtors and builders and all that. Um, our, our website gets close to 4 million hits a month. Uh, and a lot of them are outside of King County because people view this as an attractive and an interesting place to perhaps move or locate a business for that. But what I thought was, look, I've been chief of staff to Executive Sims, and one of the things I recognized when I worked for Ron is, is that, that certain public agencies, often for very you know legitimate purposes, buy properties for a particular project, the project moves on, they used it as a staging area or something, and they finish the project, and frankly, the property sort of gets lost in the, the shuffle. Or the project changes, and they go, oh, we don't need that after all. Okay, well, just sit it over here and we'll deal with that. And they never deal with it. So I said, let's start to identify where are there those publicly owned properties that the city or the county or the state, whoever, has, and are there ways we can put that back into use for housing? There's a big suite of publicly owned properties. I mean, there's steep sloped areas that have been bought for critical area things. What kind of properties are you thinking about as potentially being a way to solve homelessness? It, it runs the gamut. Um, you, you know, there, there's some that probably you could only use for short term, uh, for maybe a year or, or a couple years. Right. Uh, there are other cases of um, pieces of property that are um, in public uh, ownership but seem to be underutilized. For example, I was driving out on the north end just over the weekend past Fircrest, mm -hmm. a huge site, mm -hmm. once used um, for, for mental health, and, and that now largely dormant. There, there's some contract uh, folks out there, uh, I think uh, Food Lifeline has a warehouse that. But you look at that and you go, what if you repurposed that and tried to use it for housing? Mm -hmm. um, there are small parcels that, that agencies own now, one of the, the, the hurdles has been, and we're working with the speaker and others on trying to figure out how to get around this, is, well, we bought it with utility funds, let's mm -hmm. say City Light or the county's um, wastewater system. We need to get market value for it. Well, what if we could create either a, a lease program or some kind of waiver for that, that if you're using it for public goods such as housing, um, that you wouldn't necessarily have to recoup 
full market value or immediate full market value, but you could use that property and turn it over to a housing agency to develop something. So there are those kinds of things that we can do. There are going to be some sites that because of um, topography and, and, and geology and such that, that may be vacant, and frankly, they're just going to stay that way. Yeah. Although I just had somebody from a presentation I gave a couple weeks ago who, who has a company that specializes in apparently stabilizing and creating opportunities to build on steep slopes and stuff like that. So he was interested in that. So we said, fine, we'll provide you a map with those properties to the extent we have them. That's not, frankly, you know, somebody brace generally we code for when we're building our mapping uh, layers, but we said we'll give it a try and see what we can find. So th there are lots of those. We identified, for example, in the city of Seattle, um, well over 300 parcels that were 20,000 square feet or more hmm. uh, that were within a quarter mile of transit and that were publicly owned. Um, and that we identified another 200 in King County that were of a similar criteria, that were close to transit, uh, that were publicly owned. Some might be presently used or underutilized or surplus or, or, or that. But, but part of it is we as a region, frankly, haven't had a discussion about what's out there and, and inventoried it in an effective way. So what we've been trying to do is, on a, at least for the moment, informal basis, work with housing agencies and housing advocates and with local lawmakers and, and that to say, look, let us help you and let us show you, you know, here's some property here, here's some here. Where else are you looking for? Are there particular parts of the community that, you know, we really could use some housing there? So that's like part of the discussions we've had with Mary's Place is, is trying to help them identify where are there buildings that might be either vacant or that are in a situation where that might be a possibility that somebody would be willing to work with them and turn that into another site for them. Right. So, so you've really framed up this conversation for policymakers to have a conversation about even whether they want to use those those properties for housing. How have those partners received this this information coming from you? Of, of now you've mapped out where these properties are. What's the next step? How do, how do we move the conversation forward? Well, I think it's a couple things. I, I think part of it is, is that we really need to look at what are the obstacles that are preventing us from using those sooner rather than later. In some cases, there there's zoning or permitting um, issues that, that we need to address. Um, part of it is, are these all properties that we are using permanently for housing, or are they properties that we can use for a period of time at least. You know, we, we, we readily acknowledge that there are some properties that you go, look, in 10 years, they're gonna wanna use this for X or Y. On the other hand, we know from talking to some developers in that, that there may well be developers that say, look, I'll work with you. I'm interested in that property right over there, but I'm not gonna be able to build for probably three to five years. Now, if you want to put some temporary housing on that near term, I'll work a deal. We think there's that potential out there. Part of the challenge, though, is, is that it requires a sort of paradigm shift in, in thinking by local officials on how we've approached this issue. Because the, the tendency is, well, we have to build permanent housing. 
and and we can't possibly put them up now. Look, you you want to be careful that you're not putting it into housing that as soon as the wind blows and the rain comes down, it falls apart on you. By the same token, though, there are, for example, modular housing units being built now. There's some being built overseas. There's a local firm, Blockables, that's building them down in Vancouver, Washington. The, the, the Blockable unit, uh, there was a demo unit they had on Westlake earlier this spring, and we match made Blockables with Compass Housing to sort of have both of them talk to one another about how could you use this for homelessness. And it was really helpful from both parties because Compass had been working with another modular builder that had run into some problems. They helped advise Blockables on how to sort of harden or toughen up their, their structure. Mm -hmm. And they built this amazing unit. It's about the size of a shipping container, but it's not a shipping container. And that's an important difference. We can talk a little bit about design factors and, and that in, in a moment. but. It, 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 it was this amazing unit that was equipped with an ADA spec bathroom, a, a small area that you could have had a microwave. It had a little mini fridge. It, it had a fold-down sofa bed uh, that you could sleep. It, it had a, a Nest thermostat could, that could be centrally controlled if you clustered them. Mm -hmm. um, it, it had a secure door uh, for somebody who's living under a freeway to be able to come in out of the cold and out of the element and out of the noise, that constant noise, and be someplace where it was quiet, where you could think, where where you had a chance not to constantly worry about, am I safe? Is it okay here? When are they coming to get me? That offers a chance to really make a life-changing difference in somebody's life. So we, we, we think there are opportunities like that, but one of the things we've run into is we have some people say, well, that doesn't fit the definition of what we traditionally use as housing for these folks. And I say, change the damn definition. You, you know, this isn't rocket science. And we shouldn't let ourselves have a solution be held hostage to the fact that we're not creative enough to figure out how to define the issue to both meet the needs we have today and the fact that the world is changing. That's one of the great challenges we have with housing. And, and we, we have to recognize that this isn't the 1950s, it's not the 1990s. The world has changed. On the one hand, the, the housing affordability issues that we have are very much a reflection of the very prosperity that we as a region enjoy. I, I was down at a, a national conference in Utah a couple of weeks ago listening to a development director from the state of Utah who, who, who carefully clicked off all the businesses they hoped to attract to Utah, starting obviously with Amazon, and then it was Boeing. And uh, the only one that for some reason they didn't want so much was Starbucks. I can't figure that out. Uh, but, but the fact is, we have a local economy that is the envy of the rest of the nation right now. But we also know, and if we're honest with ourselves, it's creating some problems, dislocation, displacement, and that. But you would think a region with an amazing reservoir of smart people, that we'd be smart enough to figure this out. Um, and, and part of that is looking at new housing methods. It's looking at, at design factors, because I think part of the resistance you get from communities about density and that is, frankly, they've too often seen it done badly. And they go, I don't want that. I don't, like that. I, I don't want to live in a, a concrete and steel canyon. 
I, I want some place that has character. We, we fall victim to zoning laws that, that don't make sense in this time. It, the, the, the whole NC rules of everything under the sun has to have street level retail. Okay, we have a glut of street level retail. The, the, the fact is that unless you're going to require a mandatory Starbucks in every building and a mandatory national bank, the fact is we got lots of street level retail. But what we really could use nowadays is for seniors and for others, some live workspace that was street level where they didn't have to go up a long flight of stairs or take the groceries up the elevator, but could walk up two stairs and be in their unit. Um, we need to rethink how we've designed the urban environment and how we make it so that you can have density, but you can also achieve some sense of community. And I think we're smart enough to do that. Yeah. It, it sounds like what kind of, kind of this adaptiveness and this flexibility that you're advocating is very much what happens during a crisis, during an emergency. And, and in Seattle, we've declared uh, a homeless state of emergency. Uh, and I want you to talk about whether or not you see these strategies as temporary to, to address that state of emergency, or is this a long-term paradigm shift that, that we see moving forward? I think it has to be both. I, 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 one of my frustrations right now is for, for the declarations we've made about a housing emergency, we frankly don't act like we have one. We, we are, if this is aggressive, God help us. Um, we, we need to move at a much faster clip. And, and part of it is also, we, we need to look at how we can scale much larger, much faster, soundly and, and smartly. Um, but it also is a paradigm shift. We, we have to rethink how we deliver housing and especially housing for low income folks. The, the, the county estimates that the typical cost of building a unit of, of brick-and-mortar housing for a low-income uh, person is $350,000 a door. Wow. We simply don't have enough money, and we aren't going to have enough money to build enough units at $350,000 a door. There's cheaper ways to do it. First and foremost, because of the cost of land, part of it is let's start to utilize public land that is sitting dormant that we could easily put into housing. But then beyond that, let's take it beyond that to look at how we're more creative and, and, and learning from some of the things that some of the best technology companies in our region have brought forward and start to apply that to housing. And, and you see that starting to happen. You're, you're seeing modular construction approaches that, that allow you to build things quicker and at a fraction of the cost um, for both things like these modular units that the Blockables is building, which is largely, if you will, adult Legos. You, you know, you you, you, you you literally can now go online. They on should really rebrand. brand. Yeah, maybe, maybe they should. I think they got a trademark issue there, though. <laughs> but, but you can see how you can lash them together. I mean, we we came out with a layout for a site we, we've identified that's about two acres that's on Elliott Avenue. And, and we figured you could put about 120 units there, some one-room, some multi-room units, but create a situation where you had on-site services and all that. The, the, the challenge for the community in part is, is we, we've got to stop nitpicking looking for the perfect solution, and we have to start looking holistically 
for, for real solutions and things that actually will make a difference. And they can make a difference quickly. We don't need more plans. We don't need more special studies. We don't need to gaze at our navels anymore. We need to get busy. Which leads maybe to the, the new administration. What do you hope the new administration kind of takes from the, the information that you provided and, and moves forward in the next year? We're looking forward to, and I already have had um, Mayor-elect Durkin reach uh, back to me and say that she's excited about sitting down with us. Um, we, we think that there's some real opportunity for the city with new leadership to, to, to get moving, to start to look at some more innovative approaches, in addition to, you know, it's, it's not that we should, should just cast aside and forget those housing approaches and those housing organizations that have provided vital housing for us over the years. But we've got to start to introduce new almonds in addition to those. I think she'll be open to that. I think she gets it. I think she also has the advantage that she's not a hostage to past city practices and the city bureaucracy and, and, and things like that. What we're in some ways, and what I'm advocating is somewhat like in the technology sector, it's a disruptive approach. But I've spent enough time, both when I worked for Executive Sims and since taking office here as assessor just over not quite two years ago, that I don't see any other way we're going to solve this if we're not willing to take a somewhat disruptive approach. Let's be prepared that in some cases, you may fail. Let's hopefully that they're not epic fails, but let's try to be smart about it and say, okay, let's try this and see. You know, I, I listened to, to city official tell me uh, with these modular units, well, we're not sure about the durability of them. I wonder if they'll last long enough and, and, and that. So, so the, the, the company actually had an independent structural engineer come in and look at after the engineer went through the unit and did all his analysis, he came back to Aaron Holmes, the CEO of Blockables. He said, well, I, I gotta tell you, I've got a problem. Oh God, what is it? He said, well, I think you over-engineered these units because we figured they're good for about 150 years and we think you'd be okay at 100. <laughs> um, you, you, you know, God, let's have more of that kind of problem. But, but a lot of the things that we throw up are things that are solvable if rather than sitting and clasping our hands across our chest, I just don't know, I don't know how you could do that. We say, how would we do that? How do we get that done? You see up on the wall, one of the quotes I've got, and I have two favorite quotes, but it's from Bobby Kennedy. There are those who look at things the way they are and ask why. I dream of things that never were and ask why not. We need to be asking why not a lot more than we ask why. And if we ask why not, I think we can solve this. I think we can move ahead on it. But it's that challenge of building community will and not letting ourselves pick ourselves apart in pieces. And, and look at, all right, look, I don't agree with everything John's saying, but there's some kernels of hope here. Let's water those and see where they go. And the other one, we'll send John back to his room and tell him, work on that. Do you think that's that's the biggest challenge, is kind of people's imagination not being able to see a different future? I think that's part of it, because I, I, I think 
the, the shame is is that what people now see around Seattle in particular is they see all the tents and the debris and and that and they see people on our streets panhandling and and there is unfortunately on the one hand a stereotyping made of a lot of the people that are homeless which I know from having spent some time dealing with homeless communities just ain't so but I, I think it also sort of leads some of us is it's hopeless it, it can't be solved and so let's not do anything or you know they they want to be homeless so you did yeah, yeah well yeah there's some small percentage of them that do but for god's sakes let that not be the impediment that stops us from helping the scores and scores of those who if we provided them a safe place to live a healthy place to live um some place out of the rain and the noise and all that that they could actually get their act together um you know i my wife and i've been lucky enough we raised four kids two boys two girls the, the boys are in it back on the east coast i call them up and borrow money from them <laughs> um but my girls both work in the food industry and you know um my, my youngest one you know she says look it's a struggle finding housing she's got a roommate right now and she's in an okay space but there have been times where she says dad i'm really close there have been times also where frankly she calls me up and goes can i borrow a little bit of money till i go yeah, yeah how much this month um but for, for a lot of young people who are trying to get established in that this market and it's exacerbated by the homelessness which is part of a reflection of our affordability issue they're hanging on and at the other end of, of the the demographic spectrum we have seniors, and I worry about this particularly over the next six months, who look at their property taxes and they go, I'm not sure I can live here anymore. I think we're going to have to sell. And the problem for them is, all right, you, you've got hundreds of thousands of dollars of equity in your house, but you sell it, where do you go? And not only that, the other thing that worries me is how do we make sure we protect those seniors in these coming months from predatory buyers that will mark them and see if they can't force them to sell their house to pay that taxes and avoid losing their home, mm -hmm. but take the house from them for pennies on what it's really worth. There, there are a lot of these issues that, that are, to me, all part of this general housing tapestry that we really need to see how they weave together and, and, and how we look at it as a whole. Do you see the deployment of kind of the more flexible type of housing units for people who are currently unhoused as helping address those larger issues, those broader affordability issues? Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think if, if you can start to provide housing for those people both you stabilize them so that they can start to if you will move up the housing ladder i think it takes some of the pressure off um uh the the, the drive to uh knock down buildings and 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 build new buildings you know part of what we have to remember is is if you will the the, the fastest most affordable form of affordable housing 
is preserving existing housing that can be offered at or below market rate. And, and there are lots of, of small landlords in our community that want to do just that. They're not in it to make a fast buck. They're in it for an investment mm -hmm. deal. Mm -hmm. And they're willing even to offer it below market. But when they get double-digit property tax increases and utility increases and levy increases and all this, eventually they just say, you know what, I'm out of here. And the trouble is those buildings, once they sell, they don't keep up. Either they let the building go to hell or more likely, whoever the buyer is, is within a year or two going to knock it down and they're going to build something new. Now, maybe in some cases they will build it with affordable housing in it. They may just pay the halla fee and say, good, I'm done with it. I don't have to worry about this no more. That's your problem. Um, but the reality is, is, is as we lose that existing housing stock, if we're not smarter about how we expand the opportunities for affordable housing and expand some of the tools we have for it, we end up just exacerbating the whole affordability crisis and it becomes harder and harder for people. And we begin to become San Francisco and that's great, you know, but you look at the tremendous economic uh, disparity and, and the, the, the rich and very poor phenomena that San Francisco embodies and you go, I don't think we want to be that. At least I frankly hope not. I had a buddy of mine that was working in technology down in San Francisco but lived here. He, he said, John, housing affordability is so bad down there. It was cheaper for me to rent a little crash pad in Berkeley that was on the BART and fly back and forth on weekends to Seattle. We need to be careful that we don't become that kind of community. The, the last question I have is around the role of public space. And you identified early on about publicly owned parcels of land. They seem like a, a ripe tool to be used for a variety of public uses. And I think that we traditionally think about public space probably in two ways. One is transportation in all of our rights of way. And second is recreational with, with parks. I think that's the general public interaction with that. But what do you see as the role of public space as addressing much bigger challenges? I think it has to be those, but more than that. I mean, part of it is is obviously being smarter about as as we develop the kind of transit system we desperately need, that we're smart about transit-oriented development, but that recognizing simply housing without some sense of scale and amenity and humanity is a fail. You know, let us not look at what happened in Chicago years and years ago with the housing projects in Chicago and somehow think we can build that kind of density anew here because we're smarter than that. But let's look at how we build and use public lands in an appropriate way to expand housing, but in other cases, uh, is it that maybe there's some open space? Maybe it is figuring out how you can use and build on this public site, but use this site as a setback or an open space. Part of it is also, are there community functions that go, if you will, be beyond or, or are outside the normal parameters of either transit or open space, i.e., 
what about either schools or daycares, um, senior centers? Are, are there other things that we as a community should be looking at developing that probably are best done or are going to need to be done in the public sector somehow, but that frankly we have not historically kind of put in the equation? We need to start looking at that now, especially as we are an aging community, despite the tremendous influx of young people, but also given the tremendous influx of young people, a lot of them eventually will probably have kids and they're going to want to know okay, what kind of public amenities are there for me to have a kid and be in the city of Seattle or be in Redmond or in Kent or Federal Way. And we have some obligation as public stewards, both of the public's dollar and of the public's land to start to think about that and think about it now, not when we're in the next crisis or the next panic hits us and we go, oh my God, we've got to do something about this right now. Awesome. John, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. Thank you.